Good morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 23, uh, verses 44 through 56. So Luke 23, go to verse 44. Today we read about the most famous death in all of history. Um, a death that even as we look through the book of Luke, it's a death that seems completely unavoidable, or it seems rather completely avoidable. Um, it's the a man dying at the hands of a mock trial. He's practically walking into it. But when we take a step back and we look at passages like Isaiah 53, which we just read, we find that this death is completely unavoidable. It's been planned for a very long time. It had to happen. And it was predicted by prophet after prophet after prophet. And it was even predicted by Jesus himself. I mean, that's the, that's the point of Luke so far as we've walked through, isn't it? The hope of Israel, God's salvation for the world. Jesus has arrived. And he has arrived. And he's promised a new kingdom. But today... He seems destined not to arrive, but to depart. So the question is, as he dies, does the mission get accomplished? I mean, three hours have passed since Jesus was nailed to the cross. He has been numbered with the transgressors, hung between two criminals and one of them thinks he's innocent. He might be dead already. We don't know. And in today's text, as he dies, we discover the answer to the question, will Jesus accomplish his mission? And it's the first point of your outline. Jesus' mission is accomplished in death. And the second thing we'll learn is that even as Jesus is buried, we'll see that the stage is set for a new mission of life. In other words, this death is not at all the end of the story. Let me start by reading verses 44 through 49 of Luke chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said that, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw about what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. So the first thing Luke tells us here is that Jesus' mission is accomplished in death. So what's happening here in these few short verses? Well, look at verse 44 and the first half of verse 45. So darkness falls 
at the sixth hour, which is noon, which is about the last time it should be dark, until the ninth hour, or about 3 p.m. And when you think about darkness falling, you might think perhaps this is ominous or dramatic or some coincidence or explained away as a solar eclipse or something, which, by the way, would be impossible because the Passover week always happened during a full moon. But no, this darkness is actually a major clue as to what's happening. This is part of the mission being accomplished. And let me explain why. Here's what the darkness represents biblically. The darkness represents Jesus taking the judgment of God. Or rather, the judgment is falling from God. Why do I say that? Well, for any reader of the Old Testament, darkness was often a representation of God's judgment. I'll share two examples of that. The first one is ironically just before the first Passover where Israel is enslaved to Egypt. And then God, in judging Egypt, sends plagues. And one of them was darkness. And the second example is from the prophet Joel. He refers to darkness on many occasions in his writings, also equating those with God's judgment. And here's one from Joel chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The day of the Lord, that's his future judgment coming. And if you remember the judgment that's been predicted by all these prophets, the judgment is not coming for Egypt this time. The judgment is coming for Israel. At least that's what appears to be happening. So what does this mean? What does this darkness mean? It means that the real suffering suffering of Jesus is not simply happening by the cross. The real suffering is Jesus taking the judgment of God. That's what's happening. It's falling on him. He's doing it here. So not only is just about everybody here treating him as guilty and hurling hurling insults on him, God the Father is actually laying the guilt on him. But then look what happens at the end of verse 45. We see the result of that judgment falling. The temple curtain is torn in two. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, who is in the crowd here, He clarifies in his account that this tearing happens from top to bottom. And this curtain is described elsewhere as as thick as the breadth of a hand. So the width of a hand. Imagine a curtain that thick. In short, like the darkness, this is no easily explainable natural event. This is not something that can be faked. And here's what this represents. Judgment falls, 
And Jesus takes it. And in exchange, he restores mankind's access to God. I'm going to explain that. Because historically, we have to know what this curtain represented. Historically, the curtain represented the separation of everyone in Israel except for the high priest from entering the holiest place in the temple. That is the presence of God. This, this centermost place was where sacrifices would be made to cover Israel's sin. And every year the high priest would have to do it. And then he'd die. And then another one would have to be raised up and he'd do it. Hebrews talks a lot about this. And so the curtain tearing signifies something really important. Because of judgment falling on Jesus, that has been accepted and access to God is now for anyone. No more sacrifices are needed. Do you see what's happening in just two verses? Luke is proving a point. Jesus has called himself on multiple occasions the Savior of Israel, and he's doing it right here. He's here to die so that not only could the judgment of God be removed from people, but that access to God could be given to people. And so finally, with these accomplishments in place, Jesus cries out in verse 46, look at it, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and then he dies. Jesus dies. What's the significance of these words that he says? Well, these words show us that Jesus is faithful to the end. He's quoting Psalm 31. It's almost a a summary of what's happened. Psalm 31 was written by a famous Israelite, King David, who Jesus is descended from, sort of. And I won't read the whole psalm, but here's a summary. In it, King David is praising God for rescuing and redeeming him. And he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. But compare that to what Jesus is doing here. Jesus has refused to be rescued. He's been able to get out of this death on multiple occasions and he hasn't taken it. And Jesus doesn't need redemption either. Instead, Jesus is giving his life as the innocent, perfect sacrifice so that other people, even those who are killing him right now, might be rescued and redeemed. (coughs) And as we read during the Passover feast in chapter 22, this is what happened. Jesus' body has been broken and his blood has been poured out right here on the cross. And all that remains, so to speak, is his spirit, which he is offering up to his father. It's literally all he has left. 
Jesus is faithful to the end. And what's the point of all this? And I hope you don't miss it. Jesus' mission is accomplished in his death. So how do we respond to something like this? Well, let's look first at how the mob here responds. And then how the original audience to the writings of Luke responded. And then we'll look at us. First, the response of uh, the people here is that the guilty see his innocence. In other words, some people who were denying him and mocking him, they finally get it. Jesus hasn't vindicated himself. He hasn't gone down proclaiming his innocence. He just died quietly, finishing the job, and now they get it. Look at the Roman centurion in verse 47. He praises God. Certainly this man was innocent. Now, why is this so significant? Why does he say this? Well, this man would have been in charge of the soldiers who were just mocking Jesus. He was their boss. This man is a centurion in Rome. Do you know how many people he's watched die? But now, he worships God openly? That's a no-no. You don't do that if you're a centurion. In the sense of Jesus, can you imagine a, a hardened soldier looking on somebody who died and say, that guy was innocent. We messed up. That doesn't happen. But here it is. This is maybe the last person you would expect to have a change of heart. Which, by the way, I think is just further proof that the mission was accomplished. So what changed him? I don't know. I don't know. He was used to crucified criminals, maybe. Maybe he's used to people cursing Rome and swearing innocence all the way to the end, just yelling the whole time. Jesus was different. He died almost silently. The only thing he did was talk a little bit with one of the other guys hanging up. That's all he did. Then he quoted a psalm. Maybe it was the testimony of the other crucified criminal. Maybe he watched the trial and things just started to crumble around him. Maybe it was the dark sky. Maybe it was the sound of the curtain tearing a long way off. I don't know. But it seems Jesus has redeemed him. This guy. Now, what about the crowds? What about the other people there? They have a bit of a reality check, too. Look at verse 48. Everybody here witnesses the darkness and the tearing curtain, and now the centurion's testimony, and they see the fallout of the spectacle, and they go home sad. I think reality just hit them. We messed up. We got caught up in the emotion of the moment, and we forgot who Jesus was. 
That doesn't describe some of our days. And this crowd, by the way, includes his disciples, who we also see, including the women who followed Jesus from Galilee. And remember them, because they're going to come in handy later. Look at verse 49. They're all at a distance. They're not on the front lines dying with him. They're just standing back. And their leader is dead. Who knows the grief or the guilt that they might feel. But the overwhelming feeling, whether they repent, we don't know. Except for the centurion. But they see his innocence. Now, how about the original audience? How about the people reading Luke's writings? Because you remember the recipient of this is a guy named Theophilus. And he was an official sometime after the death of Jesus. And he was given this letter as a bit of a defense. This letter was written by Luke because his friend, the Apostle Paul, was facing similar charges to what Jesus faced. And the charges were he's an enemy of the Jews and he's an enemy of the temple. He's just like Jesus. Theophilus would read this and he would see overwhelming evidence. Jesus arrested, mocked, killed. He's the king. He's the savior. This is the guy. The mission was successful. Jesus is innocent, though everyone else be guilty. Jesus hasn't ruined Judaism. He fulfilled it. If Theophilus were the lover of God that his name implies, he would read this and he would be convicted. So here's the question for us. Are you convicted? Does this story do anything for you? I mean, I'm going to be honest. I've heard this story a million times. I grew up in I saw it on the felt boards. I colored the coloring pages. I read about it in the kids' Bible. I watched some twisted version of it in Veggie Tales. Did you? How many times have you heard this story? And did you zone out at all when I was reading it? I can be so cold to this story. Let me tell you just one way how I can miss this. It's just every day. I'm going to give you an example in my life. And then you tell me if you can. Okay. Say, for example, I want you to imagine with me. Say I sin. Just imagine that. It's my typical response. I tell you, I feel sad. I feel guilty. I'm so messed up. But guess what? 
Guess what I do after that? So many times. I think about something good that I did, and then I feel better. Or I look at my neighbor, or I turn on the TV, make some president or some congressman or some criminal, and I allow myself to feel better. So my response to my guilt so often is either more guilt or I one-up somebody who seems more guilty. Now let me tell you how that relates to lack of conviction. And I'll ask you this question. How many innocent people were at this crucifixion? Or pick up your Bible. How many innocent people are in there? One, just one. That's what needs to convict us. That that guy died so you can live. That's what needs to motivate us. Not simply our guilt or the guilt of other people. What needs to motivate us and what you need to center your life around and what I need to center my life around is the innocence of Jesus. One sacrifice, full access, no pity party needed ever again. Never. This Roman centurion, man, he could have thrown a pity party, couldn't he have? But he didn't. You know what he did? He praised God because I think he looked at the dead face of Jesus and he saw the merciful face of God. Let that move you as you share Jesus. Let that move you when you sin to repent, to look on his innocence. And then go out when you share, something amazing has happened. The only innocent person ever died for me and for you. Lead with that. I mean, you can bake them brownies if you want. Don't stop there. Think that's saving anybody? This one sacrifice took away anything bad that I ever did and you ever did. Forever. One sacrifice. And you know the best part of this? is that this story isn't simply go home beating our breasts. We don't stand far off because something more amazing is going to happen. And it's going to happen next week, according to the our preaching schedule. <laughs> but it's going to be laid now. Because what Luke does is prove that something amazing is about to happen. Let me read 50 through 56. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. 
He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed, there they are again, and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointment. And the second thing Luke is showing us here, and it's much shorter, is that the stage is set for a new mission of life. It's so unbelievable. It needs a very neat, orderly paper trail. And we just read the paper trail. Two evidences. Let me show you. For one, his burial was certain. And I don't just mean, you know, he was thrown in the ground. I mean, his burial was certain. Jesus was buried in a particular place. Look at this man, Joseph, in verse 50. And look at all the details that Luke gives us. Where is he from? Arimathea. In other words, you can go find him. He's also a council member in good standing. If you look at verse 51, he's a good council member because he was not in favor of the trial and he is described as looking for the kingdom of God, which if you've read the book of Luke is shorthand for he is a follower of Jesus. This is a man to be trusted, Theophilus. That's what this text is saying. Verse 52, Joseph, this trustworthy man, gets the body of Jesus, and then in verse 53, look at it, he buries Jesus in a tomb where no one else had been laid. In other words, no body switching. In other words, no mass grave where he might throw a common criminal. Here, he's right here. That's a pain. Second thing we see here, two witnesses see everything. That's our second huge piece of evidence. Two of the women who watched the crucifixion. You see what happens? They follow Jesus from Galilee. That's what we learned. They know, so they know he's the one being crucified in the center. They know him. That's him. They watch him die from far off. Now look at verse 55. They follow Joseph. They see the tomb. They see Jesus go in the tomb. Then they return home because they're the ones that are going to come back to that tomb to care for the dead body. What does this mean? Let's not miss how significant this is. If Jesus really is innocent, he completed his mission and everything Luke wrote down is true. The hope of Israel, God's plan of salvation for the world, had died in Jesus and he was buried. This is true because Jesus is innocent. But we have to keep going. Let's think about some more things. 
if he walked into his own death, which he did, and he hung on a cross, which he did, and the signs were there that he showed us that his mission of salvation was accomplished, that he gave, he took the judgment of God and gave access to God and was faithful to the end. All that's true because Jesus is innocent. And right here, let's add this on top. Not only are your sins dead, placed on the shoulders of Jesus, they are buried. They're buried. Just in case you weren't certain. But that's not all. Because if Jesus has said that he would suffer and die and yet be present in the new kingdom, which he did say, and then after he died, his body was given to a trustworthy man who was witnessed by two people placing Jesus in a specific tomb. And you know what that means? He's not going to stay in that tomb. That one right there. He won't stay dead. And if he is innocent, and the evidence is overwhelming, all of this will happen. Friends, this is a story not of sadness. This is a story of an accomplished mission. Jesus died and was buried to secure salvation for those who declare his innocence. Not simply the good church kids, people like the Roman centurion. And here's the aim. Here's why I say that main point. He did all of this, and Luke took much effort to write all of this down, and people over the years died to translate your Bible so that you can be certain that he accomplished his mission as the appointed Savior. So are you certain? Are you certain that the judgment fell on Jesus? And are you certain that the temple curtain was torn? And are you certain that Jesus was buried right there, witnessed? Are you certain? If you're still on the fence... I don't know what else to tell you. Look at text. Look at it and pray over it and consider this and be certain about this. Jesus really died. He really was buried. And the prophecy was there. And the is there. And the innocence is there. And then know this. If you are still not certain, if you do not declare him as innocent, it is up to you to take the judgment of God. Because if that's you, and the darkness fell on Jesus, and the curtain was torn, 
for all those who follow him and declare him innocent? That's not you. And the darkness, the coming day of the Lord that we read about later in Scripture and that Jesus points ahead to, that is coming for you. Jesus is the Savior that you need. But if you are certain of this, then guess what? If he's raised up, then that means the mission that he sends people out on, that's for you too. And it means that all of your sins are forgiven, even as you fail in your attempt to obey. And that is what communion is about. And we're going to take it this morning. And so if you are certain, if you know that Jesus died, if you know that he was buried, and, well, we are going to find it out next week, (laughs) but if you're certain that he was resurrected, then this is for you. It's the reminder that his body was broken and his blood was poured out for your sin, for all of your sins, so that you are free to not only be forgiven, but you now live a new life in obedience to him. So if that is you, partake with us. If that's not you, I do want to encourage you, continue to read the text, continue to ask questions, but do not tarry. Don't tarry. You need the blood of Jesus. And so do not come up and take, if that is you. Do not remain in your seat, and I'd be glad to talk to you afterwards. What we're going to do is we're going to have the umbrellas come up clockwise. So we'll start with Terry and Lonnie. We'll make our way around, and then the chairs and the John family, faithful as ever, will bring up the rear. And uh, then uh, Allie will play as we do that, and we'll partake together. As you collect uh, the, uh, the juice, there is a wafer in the top part. It's just to keep everything neat and clean. Please wear your mask when you come up. And uh, Allie, would you uh, go ahead and lead us? And uh, I'd like to ask Lonnie and Terry to start.